Hey, Olive Garden, and welcome to the 92nd episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from screenwriting to sports writing to erotica to self-help to song lyrics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's guest was discovered by my wife. Yep, my wife. Though Catherine Perlman isn't a big L reader, she somehow got hooked on the work of R. Eric Thomas, the playwright who writes a regular political satire column for L.com titled Eric Reads the News. And this isn't an exaggeration. It's friggin' fantastic. It's pointed, it's hilarious, it's smart, it's unique. It's some of the best stuff I've read in a long time. So I thought it'd be cool to get Eric in here to talk about Cory Booker's grandmother's tiara, about writing with the perspective of a black gay man in modern America, about finding humor in really tough times. Eric's a legit talent, and he's right now on Two Writers, Sling and Yang. Eric, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. So, you know, it's very funny. I come home one day, and my wife goes, do you know this writer, Eric Thomas? And I'm like, I don't know, who's he write for? He's like, Elle's website. I'm like, uh, not really, not my turn. She's like, <laughs> you got to read this guy. He's so ridiculously funny. Specifically, she's she's sitting there reading your, he's Cory Booker's aunt, instant oh, yeah. icon, or Tiara <laughs> to watch him on The View. It's freaking brilliant. Like, it is, it is so ridiculously good. And then I'm just like stuck in this black hole that is, you know, your regular column for, for the website, Eric Reads the News. And before I even get into the writing specifically, Here's what I keep thinking when I when I read your stuff. We are living in this absolute shithole of a presidency where mm-hmm. it is worse than I thought it would be, and I thought it would be the worst ever. And you are able to write with humor and whimsy and make fun of people, and it never feels really bitter. Mm-hmm. And I'm sort of interested how you do this without losing your mind. Well, I mean, that is, uh, that is a really good question. And it's something that I think about a lot. When I started the column, I started during the, um, right before the Demo- uh, Democratic National Convention in 2016. Um, and I never wrote about Trump in the beginning because I didn't think anything was funny about Trump. And I sort of presumed that after the election, he would go back to being a C-list flop like he is. And, uh, I would never have to like figure out how to make this terrible person funny and obviously uh that is not the case so i i i have to i i like to approach the column from a place of some kind of hope because otherwise like what am i doing what are we doing here you know so i end up writing about him more often than not because he's a nonsense person but like i'm not interested in i'm not interested in wallowing um you, you know, like it's, it's easy enough to like get bogged down by the reality of our situation in, in like everyday life. So when I sit down at the computer and I like, and, or my editor sends me something and it's like, make this funny, like the necessity really is the mother of invention. And I'm like, I guess I got to find a joke about this. You know, I got to find a joke about Melania's decorations or I got to find a joke about, you know, um, this, you know, insane press conference he gave. So, you, you know, I, it's, it's really, it's just the mindset that I have to do this to get paid. I mean, and it's like, but it's been really healthy for me because I think otherwise 
I, I wouldn't be trying to find any humor in all of this. And it, that becomes an untenable situation, I think. Yeah. Like I just saw it this morning. He tweeted, and I wish I didn't see it. You know, Trump tweets three hours ago. The New York Times was reporting false. They're a true enemy of the people. Enemy of the people, of course, in caps with an exclamation mark. And, you know, I feel like punching a wall because inevitably some reporter is going to get punched or shot mm -hmm. or blah, blah, blah. And I, I am really, really struggling to be able to shrug this stuff off or laugh it off. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that's the thing. There are some things that are just absolutely not funny. You know, like I couldn't, you know, when they were putting children, separating children at the border and putting them in cages, you know, I wrote a very serious opinion piece about that because there is nothing funny to be said about that. Or if there is, I'm not the person, you know, I think you, you, you bring who you are and what your experiences are to any attempt to, um, to poke fun. Um, but yeah, like the consequences of his actions are so severe and so wide ranging that it's, it's really terrifying. Um, but like my ambition is to outlive this presidency and to outlive him. And I have to have something left inside of myself to be, to, to, uh, be worth living for. Otherwise I'm, uh, a, a person who spends the rest of his life embittered about this terrible thing. And I, 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 can't imagine that future for myself. But it's like, you know, it's really hard. I don't follow him on Twitter. You know, I'm like, I see it enough. Like everybody retweets him. So I see the things I need to see. Um, I never listen to his voice. But I also like, when I'm writing, I'm desperate to find any other story besides whatever the Trump story of the day is. Because there's a Trump story every day, which is outrageous. I never thought about Barack Obama this much. And I loved Obama. Never thought about him. So, right. You know, that's why I'm really grateful when celebrities do weird things. This last week, I wrote about uh, this dog in the Westminster Dog Show, um, this Bichon Frise that, like, didn't give a shit about the rules or showing up on time or doing anything. And, it, like, it was one of my most read columns. Um, and I think there is also a hunger for counter-programming um, and an affirmation that we are still alive and that, that we are still capable of interacting as humans to each other, even though there is a monster uh, in the White House. All right, I got to get to this. Cory Booker's aunt, instant icon, wore tiara to watch him on The View. Uh, February mm -hmm. 1st, 2019. It's freaking masterful. I just want to read the lead here. You, you're, we are in an absolutely soul-deadening 641 days away from the 2020 election, but I've already made my final decision. No need for debates, no need for town halls, no need for a primary. I'm here by casting my vote. For Cory Booker's instantly iconic Aunt Alma, please consider this an absentee ballot. Print it out and take it to a notary and then do whatever happens after you take something to a notary. This thing is all wrapped up. Senator Booker declared his candidacy for presidency this morning, widening the field of hopefuls to roughly 12,000 for both parties, plus a faint whiff of over-roasted coffee beans at his Howard Schultz's campaign, <laughs> which is a great line. The senator from New Jersey chose to make his announcement on The View, where he was joined by his mother, Carolyn, and his brother, Carrie, who could totally sub in for him in a Dave situation, which actually is true. Um, <laughs> however, the real show is back in Iowa, where many members of Booker's extended family gathered to watch the broadcast, and the world got its first glimpse of its future leader, Aunt Alma <laughs> Morris, tiara-wearing queen. And there's a, there's a picture that was <laughs> sent out, and it's his family in Iowa. And they're all kind of bored and disinterested looking, you mm -hmm. know, watching at the TV. And there she is, his 99-year-old aunt, 
wearing mm-hmm. like kind of a almost like a MC Hammer top, <laughs> like something yes. he would have worn in '94. Mm-hmm. And she's wearing a tiara, and she looks bored out of her mind. And he wrote, "Let's just do a quick rundown of what I love about this. One, everything. Two, she's wearing a tiara. <laughs> Three, she's wearing a tiara and looking especially unbothered. She's like, of course I'm wearing a tiara. It's Friday, lemon. What am I, a peasant?" Four, she's wearing the kind of colorful sweater that comes from the favorite on section of Macy's. Five, she's sitting so much farther from the TV than I would ever be able to, despite the fact that she's 99 years old. Six, she's 99 years old. Seven, a tiara. My life, it has been gotten. I freaking love this. All right. I am actually fast. First of all, I love that you're right. You're laughing at your own writing. Which I, it's pretty joy. So here you are. You're going about your life. You write this column for L. It's about sort of politics and humor. How does this even enter your mind? How does this happen? Um, so I scour the internet. I scour Twitter and Google Trends and um, Facebook uh, pretty much all day long. And um, I am always on the lookout for something that I find funny or odd or something that seems a little bit beside a story. Um, so I, I think with Alma, I, I recall seeing the picture of Cory Booker's whole family. Like I think one of like a local Iowa reporter tweeted it out and and like made note like oh that's Cory Booker's aunt she's wearing a tiara and like that's all I needed I was like this is a picture that like sparks joy you know to reuse the Marie Kondo word and also this is something that I can run with and usually I'm not like I'm never really sure with a column like where it's going to go but as long as I can I've got the the bead of the idea uh then I can sort of just like riff on the premise so like the idea this 99 year old woman is wearing a tiara and looking like she, like this is something she does every day. I'm like, great. Well, this kind of sells itself. And yeah, and I just start riffing. What I like about being able to do this column is that when I stop, you know, when I get to a point where I'm like, all right, like those are the jokes. I go back and I stare at the photo some more and I'm like, well, what else haven't I found? And then, you know, so you talk about the tiara and then you're like, oh, wait, she's wearing this like super aunt like sweater. That's amazing. Oh, let's look at like, are there other pictures of Cory Booker on the view? Is there anything funny that he's doing on the view? No, probably not. But, um, his brother looks just like him. Great. I'll throw that in. My editors give me so much free reign that like, I literally can just say anything that comes to mind. And as long as it's funny and not offensive, they let me, they let me run with it. There was a video the other day, Kirsten Gillibrand, the governor, mm-hmm. uh, excuse me, senator from New York who's running for president. And she's speaking at a restaurant in Iowa City. She's giving this speech and some woman walks by because and she tells her she's just trying to get some brand mm-hmm. dress. And it kind of went viral. And it's sort of interesting because I, I actually showed it to my wife last night. And I was like, you got to watch this. And she was like, eh, that's not really as funny as I thought it was going to be. Everything is so out there now, right? Everything is on video. We have a million punchlines delivered to us. Like there's a punchline right there. She's, the woman's giving a political speech. And a woman has to uh, walks by and doesn't even give a crap because she just wants a ranch dressing. How do you write about those things? Is there an overkill to the amount of stuff we see? And is it harder to write sort of originally and funny in this age where everything is actually in front of us in video form? Well, I don't know that the video makes it harder. I think the video actually makes it uh, like a little bit easier for me because I don't have to explain a lot of things with the, with a premise. It's sort of like, there's the video. Now, like, now read what I have to say about it. Like, so I set it up and I'm like, you should receive it in this way. Watch it or don't watch it, whatever. And then read the rest of, read all the, the things I have to say about it. I think there are stories that like have been like the, my editors pitched to me or that I've started to write that I've just 
sort of abandon. I rarely do that. Or I really do try to like shake a joke out of, of something. But like there are, there are wells that have just been like that are dry. I rarely write about the Kardashians. I don't really like, I think somebody else maybe would be able to write about them in a funny way, but I'm sort of like, mm-hmm. I don't know. They're so overexposed. Um, at Kanye after a while with his antics, I wrote about him a couple times. And then after that, like he kept showing up and I was like, I, there's no more to say here. That's, that's funny. Like the joke is that he is this megalomaniac who's showing Trump picture of a plane that he should build like this is nonsense you know right so i think i think overexposure isn't the the issue it's sort of either not having a precise take or like all the takes have been taken if we've heard every single joke about something um then then we're done and the internet beats things to death which is why I, i like the ranch woman i really liked because the line is sort of funny but like it enabled me to just make a larger statement about priorities, you know, like I'm much more interested in getting ranch dressing than I am in hearing any politician speak, you know, every paragraph, essentially that was the same. That was the premise uh, of every paragraph. It was like ranch dressing 2020. And then I was done, you know, it's 500 words. I'm out of there. Uh, but yeah, that, if like some, if the ranch dressing woman did something else today, I'd be like, no, I think we're good. I think, I think the internet has, has made the jokes. Before we continue with Two Riders Sling and Yang, quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey Perlman, who believes in the power of true love. Casey, why do you believe in the power of true love? Because I've fallen for someone special. You're only 15. You're way too young. Stop it. This is the real thing. I love him. What's his name? Hat. Hat? Yes, Dad. It's my new Portland Mavericks fitted hat from 503 Sport. You're in love with a hat? Not just any hat, Dad. A big white M. Red, white, and black trim. Perfectly adjusted for my slightly puffy, a little bit lumpy adolescent head. Wait, I didn't agree to read that. That's great, because your new love is made by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise and the sponsor of this podcast. You can visit 503-sports.com for all sorts of awesome hats, jerseys, t-shirts. It's the best. Hat and I are getting married. All right, that's just weird. You were asked uh, in an interview a couple of years ago by Philadelphia Magazine, someone, someone asked, what's the inspiration behind your creative way with words? And you wrote, you said a, a compulsive desire to be liked, also a deep lifelong sadness, honestly, being sad and feeling out of place in the world and in various situations imbued me with a hunger for a world that was more beautiful, magical, maybe, and wider. Uh, I hungered for a world that included me. You're African-American, you're gay. I don't know. Does Does America make you feel sort of in 2019, make you feel out of place? I don't know. Does that kind of make you the writer who you are in, in many ways? Well, I, I think it, it does make me the writer who I am. Um, I have never felt not out of place in America. Uh, I think I probably feel more um, at home in America now than I ever have been, which is not a statement on how great we are now. It's just more of a statement about how terrible the past was. But the past was bad for almost everybody. Um, but I, I think having to otherness is, is sort of this continued theme in my life. And so this idea of like being on the margin and um, and trying to get to the center or trying to dissect the center and figure out what it is about the center that I want or admire or covet um, is really helpful in like building a comedic voice. I know who I am. I know how I'm perceived and I'm able to use that uh, to my advantage. 
comedically. Um, and because I'm spending so much time look on the outside, looking in on various, in various ways, I'm also like, I'm picking up on things that are maybe not, uh, like noticed the first time around. And so that really helps, you know, like, especially with the, the way that I write, like, um, I'm really just trying to point out things that maybe people didn't, uh, didn't see the, the first time or didn't, didn't realize could have comedic potential. Um, and I, I think that's what most comedians do. Um, I think most comedians are pretty sad. Um, and I think it's, I think it's really natural to, um, uh, to be funny as well as being sad because you're able, you're able to look at your, uh, look at emotions, um, in a really honest way. And I think that empowers you to use the full range of emotions, sadness and humor and I suppose anger. And I don't know what other emotions are. I think I've run out of, uh, <laughs> giddiness. I don't know. Yeah, right. Giddiness, hunger. I don't know who can say. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, I think one of the most powerful things about uh, about this moment in america is the a decentralization of of a uh of one set narrative i think we're not we're not there at all um but i think more and more there's this realization that there isn't a standard experience that despite the fact that like every middle-aged white man seems to have put a, a blackface picture in his yearbook that's not what everybody does and so like it is okay to say Hey, that's not a standard. This, this is not the standard bearer. I can stand outside and say, that's pretty weird. Um, and it empowers the people who've been in the center to step down off of this pedestal, which is probably uncomfortable, but I think is ultimately freeing because you are able to be yourself as opposed to a monolith. Um, so I don't know. I won't live to see that really that actually happen. Um, and the planet probably won't live to see that actually happen either, but maybe in the next world. I was looking for positivity, damn it. That was not a, uh, <laughs> I will say one thing that I do find very interesting. So I have, um, my daughter's 15. She's a, a sophomore in high school and, and I have a nephew who's in, in college at NYU. And if you talk to them about sexuality and like whether they're friends or gay or straight or bi or whatever, um, it's a non-issue to them. Like, it's not, and I don't mean it in the way, like, it's a non-issue. Like, why? Well, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Like, it's a non-issue in that they actually don't really care. Like, they have friends who are gay. They have friends who are bi. They have friends who are straight. And I, I always tell my daughter, when I was growing up in very conservative Putnam County, New York, you could not come out of the closet in my mm -hmm. high school. Like, no one did. Obviously, there are gay kids in school, but none of them can. No one came out because you couldn't. Because you would right. get your ass kicked. And I feel right. like it is encouraging that you actually, I feel like I'm 46 and I feel like my generation has kind of, is a little disappointing. You know, it's a little disappointing, but I see my kids and I think, you know what, this actually, people are progressing. And in a way, I feel like maybe this whole Donald Trump thing is just the last stand of idiocy or one of the final stands of idiocy. Or am I being too optimistic? I don't know. I don't, I don't think you're being too optimistic. I think. One of the things that was hardest after the election was this feeling that we were making so much progress. You know, mm -hmm. like Obama, like over the course of his eight years, went from being against same sex marriage to being, you know, for it. And, yeah. um, and, and the, and the country changed. And so we saw 
that quote-unquote evolution, which who can say whether that's genuine or, or the product of good polling, but I, who cares, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I, I, I do think, I, I think the question of the age is like, is this, uh, this systemic oppression something that we can escape? Like, is, is this a last gasp or is this, um, this whole Trump situation just a sort of like, uh, uh, a, uh, an explosion of, of, of uh, like a lava that will always sort of be underneath of us. Um, right. and I don't know, but I do think that, um, it is remarkable, um, just how much the world changes and our country changes when people are able to be more visible. Um, and I think that's the thing you're seeing with queerness and, um, and sexuality in general. Um, you're seeing more representation. You're seeing more people who are adults and who are out um, in various, you know, in all uh, permutations of sexuality and, you know, living their lives. And so when children see it, it's normalized. And the same is happening with, with race and in some, in some respects with ability. So the more visibility, the more people we know, I didn't know any gay person growing up. I didn't meet a gay person. I, oh, I didn't realize that I met a gay person until college. I realized in retrospect, there were people I knew that were gay. Um, mm-hmm. you know, teachers and whatnot, but they weren't out, um, to me at least. And so that changes the world. If you don't, if I don't know, like, I didn't even really know the word gay. I just knew it was sort of bad. If you don't even have a word for it, you can't, like, you've got to be a real pioneer to just be like, I guess I'm going to marry a man. And that is not me. I am not the first person over the ridge in a Conestoga wagon. So it took a real long time for me to figure out, oh, this is something that can exist in my vocabulary. And I went to school in New York, which is like, you know, that's, that's the thing. If you're a, a gay kid from like some random town, you go to New right. York and you like date a guy and you write a solo show and that's, you know, that's your deal. So, you know, mission accomplished. But I, I think kids now, you know, my nephew, uh, he's five, he's got two gay uncles and who knows how I'm, however many other queer people he knows in his life. So it won't, Hopefully, even though he live, he's growing up in South Carolina, and that's another that's another country, mm-hmm. he won't have the same obstacle uh, implanted in his mind to understanding that people are people. Right. Do you feel like this? This may sound like a dumb question. When you write opinion pieces and you're writing a column, do you feel like a reader can know from reading your takes that you are gay, that you are black? Are you trying to put that out there? to sort of show where you are coming from or should a reader walk away from most of your stuff and say, I have no idea. It's just a guy who wrote these things. No, I, I think I, I do try, I try and speak with uh, a voice that's very mixed of like, uh, from my different identities, you know? So mm-hmm. there is like vernacular that's, that, that is, uh, that is gay or that's part of a gay culture. And there's vernacular that's part of like a black experience. And the references that I make are always very specific to my experience, but that, that experience might be the experience of being on the internet or the experience of like watching, uh, I don't know, living single growing up. But yeah, I don't know. I, I think I try to write with, with the most specificity because that is the, I find that when I write in a way, like a lot of, you know, I've been asked to write more serious things. And, and when I write more seriously, it sort of just strips my voice of particularity and that's not as strong in, in the writing. Um, and so I, I try to write always, 
um, so that you know, you get a sense of where I'm coming from. You may not be able to say like, this person is black or this person is gay, but like, it is, it, you should, it, it's, there's a pretty heavy hint there. You wrote a, you wrote a blog post three years ago. It's fucking awesome. And it was called, um, and it went, it went pretty viral. It was called Concert Dreams Cheddar Bay Budget. Yeah. You're digging in the archives. Yeah. Oh my God. I love this. <laughs> I just want to read a little bit. It's, t- it's an, o- an open letter to Beyonce. And you wrote, <laughs> Dear Beyonce, ma'am, ma'am, I did not realize a registration fee for the revolution was going to be so high. First of all, thank you. You're a phenomenal performer, business person, icon, and gift factory. We are lucky to share the earth with you. Second of all, what the fuck are you doing charging me all this money for your concert? <laughs> Where am I supposed to get the scratch to pay for your Gavinci brand event? Can I pay in Frank's Red Hot? Do you take Red Lobster gift cards? Do you? No, you do not. Ma'am, I, like many of my compatriots, am woke AF as fuck. Now, this morning, I greeted my fiance with a hearty black power. He is white. This is awkward. Yes, we can. Am I right? But ma'am, <laughs> I got to pay for cable and a wedding. And Bay, your husband told me I had to pay for title so that I could get uh, Rihanna's new album. And I did it, ma'am, because I don't know that I, I didn't know that you were about to sound the horns of Jericho and make every other album irrelevant. But I'm trying to support you. You know, we have to stick together as a people. It only took two and a half days from the time you released a black empowerment anthem for all the conversations to turn to how white people feel about it. But whatever. I'm still here for it. I'm still here for America. <laughs> yes, we can. Am I right? Am I? And then wait, last paragraph I left. You got to understand, I'm trying to have a Diana Ross in Central Park moment with you. That is free and potentially life-threatening. I'm not here for these $300 a seat reindeer games. I'm not for it. Ah, man. First of all, it's great. Like, great. You, you know, I, I, I teach journalism, and it is so hard, so hard to teach people to write with a voice that sounds like someone talking and not sound mm-hmm. contrived like someone talking. How do you write like you're talking? I just, that is a really good question. Here's the thing. Cause it's I, really hard. It's actually it really hard to do. I, well, I'm also a playwright, as you know. And so like, right. I think it comes from this, uh, the ability to sort of drop into, uh, another character's way of speaking. I love dialogue. I love the ways that people identify themselves in their speech, um, both knowingly and unknowingly. With my own writing, like I'm sort of playing a character, you know, but I'm sort of like, and so I step into this elevated character of, uh, of me, but bigger, um, more prone to being frustrated or happy or, um, annoyed. And that freedom releases something when you don't have to say, when you don't have to be a presentable version of yourself, when like you're, I, I think a lot of things open up, you know, for you. And I think. With most, I'm really lucky because there's, I, I get to do a thing that is sort of unheard of. I'm not really like, I don't, I'm not a journalist and I'm not really like a lot of other people who are writing online. I, I think I'm closer to somebody who like, uh, like people in the daily show who stop by and do like little segments because mm-hmm. they're playing versions of themselves. So like with the Beyonce thing, it was like I, the, my thought internally, like I went to the website and the tickets were like $600 and I was like, fuck this. This is nuts. <laughs> Um, and I can so, see Hall and Oates for 30. Right. Exactly. But like, I love Beyonce and I was like, I, I got to figure this out. And so like, I just, I, I turned it up and I was like, what if I was shouting through a megaphone and I had no sort of, uh, shyness about me, th- what would I say? And the, you know, and that's what comes out. And so that's what comes out with the column. I'm just sort of like, what would an in- insane version of myself say right now? And I just write that. But you were pissed, right? Oh yeah, I was pissed. 
Um, I was definitely pissed. Like, I, you know, that's the other thing. It's coming from this genuine place. Like most of the time I have to like at least sort of agree with what I'm saying in the column. Um, and like with Beyonce tickets, I was super pissed because I'm trying to go to all of her concerts. I don't want to go to, I don't, now she's touring with Jay-Z and I'm like, can you give me a half off? Cause I don't like, I don't need to see Jay-Z. I just want to see her. Um, and they're charging <laughs> all this money. And like, she had just released the, um, the song freedom. And so like, I felt blacker than I've ever felt my entire life. And I was like, I should be able to get into this show for free because like, it's a reparations. Uh, like, and so I was like, trying to find white people to give me money to get, go to this show. It was so, like, I just like, and, and so, you know, it all comes from that. And I think the reason that it went viral, it was just like, on my random blog, like nobody checked my website ever. But like, I think it went, it, like the minute I posted it online, it, it like started climbing. And I was like, this is really weird. It had never happened to me before. And I think people, like, it was a common feeling of like frustration mixed with um, the outrageousness of saying the thing that you, you're not really supposed to say. You know what's really funny is I, I think the two great complaints about concerts. So I have a, a really good friend, Copel, who, uh, she loves going to concerts. She loves Beyonce. She told me she went to Beyonce. She paid an outlandish amount for tickets. She also went to Madonna when Madonna was touring and Madonna made the crowd wait for like an hour and a half to come on. And I yeah. think those are the two things in music that can drive people to drink prices mm -hmm. and the audacity of having your customers wait an hour and a half. Oh my God. No, that's it, like, it's really crazy. Like I, I am not trying to show up and and sit around in a stadium like i have better things to do right um then like i've dressed up i'm i'm sitting with all these other people and i'm trying to have a personal experience with like pink or whoever so i certainly don't want to like have to like commune with the rabble while i wait like that's outrageous like madonna is notorious for keeping people waiting i love that lauren hill is also oh. like, she shows up like hours late i love that it's the funniest thing in the world to me because she doesn't, she doesn't give a shit. Like Lauren Hill's like, this is my process. I'm going to show up when I show up. And so like, it's just so funny to me because people keep buying tickets and, uh, as if something's going to change with Lauren Hill, nothing's going to change with Lauren Hill. Lauren Hill is showing up for a concert. Like if a concert was scheduled today, you might expect her sometime next week. And right. that is, that is the truth of who she is. And people need to accept that. And I think that's very funny. I don't think I'll ever go to a Lauren Hill concert though. I have to say. Well, the crit, so I consider the miseducation of Lauren Hill to be one of the five greatest albums ever. However, Absolutely. I'm just saying, and I think Madonna's kind of sucks, but I mean, Madonna's had a gazillion albums. Lauren Hill has one album and she still keeps doing this to people. Well, she's got two. She no, I know. I know. I know. One reputable album. How about that? That's, that's fair. But I mean, yeah. the thing is, I, I would, I would go see Lauren Hill again. Like, I, I think. I think one of the things I find interesting about Lauren Hill is, is that she is digging deeper into who she is as a performer. Um, mm -hmm. and she's leaning into the fact that her voice doesn't sound the same. Um, and she's like giving you different versions of her songs in a, in a way that like feels like more of like a coffee shop or acoustic set. Like I, I'm not really here for the production. Um, the, the, the produced distance of Madonna's shows. Um, but I didn't, you know, I grew up as a Madonna fan, but like around, I guess, Ray of Light, I was like, okay, I think I'm, I think I'm good. I think right, I'm good. You know, Had enough. 
Because there's so many yeah. different versions of Madonna. And like, you know, you could, you could love the same complaint of Beyonce. I'm probably a hypocrite. I'm not saying Madonna's bad. I'm just saying I identify more with Beyonce than Madonna. That's fair. I want to answer one more thing here. So you are a, uh, you're, you're actually, as you've, you've alluded to, and you're a playwright by trade and, and, and it's what you do. And, and, um, you have this really strong run, you know, including, you know, Miss Harrison nominated for three Barrymore, Barrymore awards, including best new play. Philadelphia Inquirer gave it this amazing review. What does it feel like? Cause this is something I will probably never know. What, what does it feel like to write a play, to work your ass off on it, to go through the sweat and the blood and everything about it? And to sit there for the first time with an audience and see it performed. Oh my God. This is, this is the best feeling in the entire world. Like I consider myself a playwright first and which is nonsense because playwriting does not pay, but like it takes so long to get something on stage. And there's so long that you're just sitting in your house and nobody's reading what you're, you're writing. And then, and you're not sure whether it makes any sense. And then you get it into the hands of performers. And they transform it and they also poke holes in it and they ask you questions you can't answer. And so it becomes this collaborative thing. And at a certain point in rehearsal, um, you know, a playwright probably shouldn't be in, in every rehearsal. And at a certain point in rehearsal, the play stops being yours. And so sitting with an audience for the first time is like magical because you get to see something that is foreign to you, but also feels like very much part of your marrow. And then when people respond, like with Mrs. Harrison, people had very vocal responses throughout the play. Um, it's this, it's a two person play about, um, who gets to tell a story. Um, and there's sort of racial lines drawn around that. And so <clears throat> they, people were like super vocal. There were like a lot of, there's a lot of laughter. Um, but there's also like gasps. And like at one point, like one character says something and then somebody in like the first audience was like, Oh no. And I like, I love anything that's going to make you break the politeness around sitting in a theater and yell something. Um, so it's, it's magical because it feels like, Oh, this weird idea that I had years ago that I, um, that no longer, I don't even know where, where the seed is anymore. I don't even know what part of me made this that is now existing in this room and making all of us feel something, um, which is, I, I can't, I can't imagine that there's any other experience like it besides maybe giving a concert, you know, and I can't sing, right. but like, I imagine that that's, that's, that's my Beyonce moment, you know? And it's like weird. Cause nobody, like I'm sitting in the dark. Nobody sees me. Half the people don't even know I wrote this thing, but I'm right. like, Oh, I exist. And this thing exists and it's making someone feel something. And it's so hard to make anybody feel anything um, besides, you know, rage with tweets, but like to really feel something to have an experience remarkable you write the play you put it forth here it is this is my thing and now you guys are going to do it when you see someone performing words you wrote mm -hmm. and i'm assuming this has happened at some point but you don't really like the way they are performing it or mm -hmm. the character the 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 actor playing whoever is not how you picture jim in your head yeah. you know like um are you able to get past that or is it a little bit difficult it's it's difficult um uh, especially if it's in a production, like if it's in like a reading or a workshop, um, it, it's a thing that you sort of just like you let pass, um, because it, it, it's all part of a process. Um, 
But with a production, it feels like a little bit of a failure and you don't really know where along the line the failure is because you're like, did I not write this play? Did I not write clearly enough? With me particularly, like I, I tend to write, most of my plays are not like my column, but every once in a while I'll throw a character in there who is sort of this, this avatar that I also play in the column. And so like big and, and snappy and, uh, you know, usually a black male and th those, those characters have been, um, very hard to cast, oddly enough. Um, and so there have been times in, in performances and in readings where I've just been like, is this incomprehensible? Like, is this not something that somebody can play? So it's, it becomes a big question, but I think I, and I don't really know how to answer it other than to say like, there's gotta be the right performer out there for every part. It's just a matter of whether that performer is accessible to me, you know? And at this point in my career, I don't have the choice of any performer. Um, so I just have to accept it. I gotta say, like to me, the, the, the giddy moment of my career comes, you have a book out and you see it in a bookstore, but I feel like you have this thing and maybe you see someone reading your book on a train or a plane and that's kind of cool, but it just seems like to have it being shown in front of a large number of people just has to take that feeling and multiply it by a thousand or 10,000. So. Oh yeah. I mean, it's like, if you've ever been to like someone's retirement party, you know, like particularly a teacher, I, um, mm -hmm. where like old students are showing up and like, you know, th that whole thing where people are saying, you affected my life, you changed my life in this way. Like, I feel like that I get that feeling sitting in the darkness, anonymously watching my work because you, you get to hear and feel like the energy in a room changes um, when right. people watch a play. And like, I don't know, I have a book coming out next February and I'm, I'm excited to see people read it on the beach, but it's like, you know, reading is such a solitary experience that like, I can't, I, I feel like when I walk up to them and be like, I wrote that book. And then like, what do they, you know, what would they do? They'd be like, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, right. like, I can't imagine. It's really weird. It's funny. I actually had, um, I just want to say I had a book. When my first book came out, I was on a uh, train one time in New York City, and I saw someone reading it. Oh, nice. And I, I sat there for 10 minutes, like, what? Do I say something? What do I do? And I finally said, oh, hey, is that book any good? And he goes, yeah, it's okay. And I was like, <laughs> all right, thanks. That was it. <laughs> I just walked away. I didn't know what else to do. What am I supposed to oh, do? Oh, my God. That's so funny. I mean, that's, yeah, that's the other danger. It's like, they're reading it, but you don't know what they were experiencing. Yeah. <laughs> like, do they like it? Do they not? Right. But it's, yeah. I mean, it's like seeing it out in the wild. Was it like, did you, were, were you confused about why, like, uh, about seeing it like in public or were you, were, were you like, this I was thrilled. Exactly? It yeah, never yeah. happened. Like you said, you, you'd love to see someone reading your book on a beach. I, when I was a younger writer and we would go to like the Jersey Shore, I'd take a walk and you see people reading. You're kind of peeking to see what they're reading, just hoping someone is reading your book. I mean, I've walked miles and miles and miles of beaches and never <laughs> oh seen a God. single person. Reading any of my books. So, you know, don't hold your breath. That's all I'm saying. Uh, I'm just going to hand them out at Coney Island. <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea. Can I take a picture of you with my book? Would that right, be offensive? Exactly. It's a beast. Um, well, listen, seriously, this has been great. And I am beyond happy that my wife introduced me to your writing because I'm not, I'm really, I really mean this in these really awful political times where I feel like yanking my hair out every day, the little hair I have. I feel like your takes are really a freaking a release and a relief for me. So I am, uh, I just, you're, you're, it's, it's great what you're doing. And I, I, I hope you, I hope you keep rolling through 2020 because it's, it's fantastic work. 
Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. And I want to like, and thank you to your wife. There's so many wives and girlfriends who have uh, proselytized for my column. And so I like, I, I owe a debt of gratitude to every wife and girlfriend out there who's like, no, seriously, read this. I want to thank today's guest, R. Eric Thomas, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow him on Twitter at Our Eric and visit his website at rericthomas.com. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Writers Slinging Yang on Apple Podcasts and Google Play and Spotify, and your views are always appreciated. Music is by the fantastic MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.